0: Well, hopefully you have a Bible with you. If you do, I'd like you to open up to John chapter 19 this morning. On this Resurrection Sunday, we have joined together with millions of Christians all over the world to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of a man named Jesus. You've heard me say this before. This man was born in a small country town to working-class parents. He lived a very short life, only 33 years. He never married, had no children, had no formal education, and did not accumulate any possessions or wealth. He had few true friends and many enemies. He died a criminal's death and was buried in a borrowed tomb. And if that was the end of the story, none of us would be here today. But as we know, that was not the end of the story. That was not the end of his story. Amen. On the third day, after his death, on the first day of the week... Jesus rose from the dead. And this event changed the course of human history. He is risen. risen It's safe to say that the resurrection of Jesus is the single most important event in all of human history. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection started a movement That spread across the entire world and continues to this day, 1,992 years later. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that is formed on the death, burial, and resurrection of its founder. Only Jesus has risen from the dead in a glorified body. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. These truths are so essential to the Christian faith that we find the resurrection of Jesus mentioned in every sermon recorded in the book of Acts and mentioned in almost every book of the New Testament. Close to a hundred times... The resurrection of Jesus is mentioned in the New Testament Scriptures. That's because, as we have sung this morning, in the resurrection of Christ, there is victory over sin, victory over Satan, and victory over death itself. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Above Him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. Amen? Today, I want us to look at the eyewitness account written by the only disciple of Jesus who was present at his death, at his burial, and was an eyewitness to his resurrection. Please open your Bibles to John 19, verse 17, as we look briefly at his account of the death and burial of Jesus before we turn our attention to his resurrection. Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to be reading a few verses from John chapter 19 to us this morning. John 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross... To the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Verse 31. May God bless the reading of His Word to us. You may be seated. In verse 18, we read these three words. Excuse me, four words. There they crucified Him. What a brief statement for the pain and the suffering That Jesus, our Messiah, suffered that day at the hands of sinful men. Which was actually nothing compared to the suffering that was poured out upon Him by God the Father. That was due for our sins. The events surrounding the death of Jesus came as no surprise to him. He not only foretold to his disciples what was going to happen, he was in control of what happened that day. He is, after all, the Son of God. God in human form. This was why he came into this world. He would live a sinless life. And then he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He had no sin to suffer for until he took our sins upon himself. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He writes, God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He who knew no sin became sin. How many sins have we committed? I'm glad there's no list. Thousands. Tens of thousands. Not only the sins of omission, but the sins of commission. Not only the sins that we carried through on, but the sins of our heart and mind. Thousands. And upon Christ was laid those sins. And he suffered the full wrath of God that was due for each and every one of my sins that I might be credited with his righteousness, that you, if you trust in him for your salvation, might be credited with his righteousness so that when the Father sees us, he does not see a sinner. He sees one clothed in the righteousness of his Son. He sees his beloved child. This is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Peter will later write of this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where he writes, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He was put to death in the flesh. He suffered in the flesh. His mortal body died and was buried. But he was raised in a spiritual body. Death has no more hold over him nor over any of us who trust in him for our salvation. Jesus died to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, and to conquer death itself for us. Jesus died so that we might live. Praise be to our Savior. John goes on to tell us that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. John wants us to understand the burial custom of the Jews, unlike some cultures where um, the body of the dead was embalmed or other cultures perhaps where the body was burned or simply buried in the ground. In the Jewish culture, the body was carefully prepared for burial. That would include washing the body and then covering it with spices and wrapping it in grave cloths. The spices helped keep the odor down over the week of mourning period when mourners would come and mourn outside of the tomb. The tomb was cut out of solid rock and had a large stone that would be rolled against the entrance to prevent anything from entering the tomb, such as wild animals or a tomb robber. That stone probably weighed a thousand pounds or more. When I was in Israel, we saw some typical stone-cut tombs and the size of the stone that would be rolled against the opening of that tomb. And the tomb, we know, was sealed and guards were placed at it according to Matthew's account in Matthew 27. That's because the Jews were afraid because Jesus had said he would rise from the dead. They needed to prevent that from happening. So let's seal up that tomb and let's put some Roman guards there to guard it so that no one can tamper with the tomb. And so they did. All of these things happened according to the predetermined plan of God. This was God's will. In Luke's gospel, we're also told that several of the women who were followers of Jesus, who had been at the cross, they followed and watched as the men placed his body into the tomb. Then, as Pastor Don read earlier, after the Sabbath, they came to the tomb bringing additional spices to add to what had been applied to Jesus' body. But when they arrived at the tomb, they found the stone removed and the body of Jesus was gone. The stone was not just rolled away, it was lifted away and removed. From the front. John focuses in his gospel on the reaction of one of these women who was there that morning. Mary Magdalene. So look at John chapter 20 verse 1 with me. Let me read our text. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary was with the other ladies. They were bringing the spices. They get to the tomb. On the way there, Matthew tells us they were discussing, How are we going to get into the tomb? with the stone that's rolled in front of it. And when they arrive at the garden, they can hardly believe their eyes. The the stone has been removed. The tomb is open, but it is empty. And Mary immediately turns and begins to run back into Jerusalem where she knows the disciples are in hiding to tell them what she has seen. The other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, it's mentioned in verse 2. That's John, who's writing this account. Then in verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John was a bit younger than Peter, and evidently in a little bit better physical condition, and they were running, running, because they had to see this for themselves. What do you mean the tube is empty? What do you mean the stone has been removed? Not that they didn't believe Mary, but after all, she was a woman. I, I don't mean you any disrespect, ladies, but you have to understand in that culture... In that day, a woman couldn't even testify in court because their testimony was not trusted. But Peter and John evidently believed Mary because they were running to see this for themselves. The disciples ran to the tomb. And when they arrived... John looked into the tomb. Look at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. He looked into the tomb. And there is the shelf on which the body of Jesus had been laid. Remember, the women had watched this on Good Friday. They knew they were at the right tomb, and they knew they were looking at the right shelf on which the body had been laid. There's no body, but there are the linen wrappings, undisturbed. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen cloth but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John tells us that with characteristic brashness, Peter arrives out of breath and pushes past John to enter the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there undisturbed. The Greek word used here for he saw is theoreo, which means to behold to gaze at or to scrutinize. Peter is looking carefully, analyzing what he is seeing. We often refer to the empty tomb of Jesus, but we see here that the tomb was not entirely empty. Instead, the disciples saw the evidence The evidence that had been left for them. The evidence that the first true resurrection had occurred. What Peter and John saw in that tomb was entirely different than what you would expect to see. Had the body of Jesus simply been moved or stolen, it would have still been wrapped in the linens and spices. But that is not what they saw. The grave cloths, even the head cloth, were on the stone shelf exactly where they should have been. And the body of Jesus should have still been inside of them. What does this evidence tell us? Had we been present in that tomb earlier that morning, at the moment of Jesus' resurrection, what would we have seen? We would have seen the resurrected, glorified, spiritual body of Jesus pass through the grave cloths and out of the sealed tomb. Just as James Boyce states in his commentary. F.F. F. Bruce writes these words. Quote, the glorified body of Jesus passed through the linen wrappings as it would later suddenly appear within closed doors. You see, Jesus' resurrection was not like that of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead just a few weeks before. Lazarus was raised in a physical body, only to die again one day. No. No. Jesus was raised in a spiritual body, not a natural body. He is the first of all who will be raised from the dead in glorified bodies when he returns in his glory. Amen? His resurrected, glorified, spiritual body passed right through those linen wrappings, right through the stone walls of that tomb. Remember, the stone was not removed. To let Jesus out. The stone was removed. To let the disciples in. So that they could see the evidence for themselves. And know. That the miracle of resurrection had occurred. Look back at verse 8 with me. Then the other disciple. That's John. Who had reached the tomb first. Also went in. And he saw and believed. John now enters the tomb, and he is confronted with the same evidence. Only John, writing about himself, uses a different Greek word for saw. This is significant. The word is a form of the verb horao, which means to see with understanding. Or to comprehend. John saw the same thing that Peter was gazing at. But John understood. John comprehended what this meant. And he believed. Meaning he believed that Jesus was resurrected. I shared this with you a few years back. James Boyce in his commentary imagines the conversation that happened at that point between John and Peter. Don't you see, Peter, that no one has moved the body or disturbed the grave clothes? They are exactly as Joseph and Nicodemus left them two days ago. Yet the body is gone. Clearly it must have passed through these cloths leaving them as we see them now. Jesus must have risen from the dead. And of course we know that's exactly what happened. And in just a few hours, John's theory would be proven. When Jesus would appear before them and the other disciples in his glorified, resurrected body... In just one of the several appearances by Jesus to his followers on that first resurrection Sunday. John then writes these words in verse 9. And John's being honest here. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John here is simply stating the fact that prior to Jesus' resurrection, the disciples simply did not understand that it would happen. Even though it had been prophesied in Scripture, and even though Jesus himself had told them that it would happen, they lacked the understanding. Until Jesus later appeared to them and opened their minds to understand all that had been written about him in Scripture. Jesus had to rise from the dead because death could not hold him. And in so doing, he demonstrated his victory over sin, his victory over Satan, and even over death itself. Just as we sang earlier, it proved that the words that he had spoken on the cross were true when he said, it is finished. The work of atonement that Jesus had come to accomplish on behalf of all who would trust in him for salvation had been completed and had been accepted by God. Paul writes these words, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 In the resurrection, we know for absolute certain that the work that he accomplished on the cross was complete, sufficient for all Who believe and trust in him for salvation. In his resurrection. Jesus proved that he was exactly who he claimed to be. That is the very son of God. The second person of the Trinity. He is the Messiah or savior sent by the father. To provide salvation for all of those chosen by him. He is our Lord. He is our king. He will return one day in glory. And usher in a new creation in which righteousness will dwell. Is creation groaning for that day? Amen, it is. Are we looking forward to that day? We are. And I want you to see something here. That all of this occurred in the manner that it occurred because Jesus wants us to believe. Listen to how John ends this chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verses 30 and 31 where John writes these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us here the purpose of this gospel, the purpose of his account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Remember, John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words. Why? So that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, And that by believing, you and I might have eternal life. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Now John's honest here. Not everything that Jesus did or said is recorded for us. But listen to me. What is recorded is sufficient evidence for us to believe that Jesus is the Savior sent by God. Think about it. This evidence includes the many miracles performed by Jesus. Those miracles were acknowledged even by his enemies. Remember, they wanted to kill him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They didn't deny that. That was the purpose for killing him, because he would raised somebody from the dead. The evidence includes the powerful teaching of Jesus... Jesus taught as one who had authority. And his teaching changed lives. The evidence includes the prophecies that were made by Jesus. I mentioned one of those last Sunday as we celebrated Palm Sunday where Jesus prophesied that in the future Jerusalem would be surrounded. It would be besieged. And then it would fall and be utterly destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And guess what? Forty years later, that's exactly what happened. The Jews rebelled against Rome, and the Roman rulers sent a legion of soldiers. They surrounded Jerusalem. They starved the city for five months. And then they destroyed it, utterly just as Jesus had said they would. Not to mention Jesus' own prophecies that he would be be betrayed by one of his own, that he would be tried by the Jews, he would be handed over to the Gentiles, he would die, he would be buried, and he would raise again on the third day. And how about the empty tomb and the grave cloths? Evidence. Evidence given by God for us. And then there's the 11 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. You don't have to look at it now, but I included a handout in your bulletin of those 11 post-resurrection appearances. Jesus appeared to his followers over the next 40 days, 10 times. And one of those appearances included 500 eyewitnesses. 500. Not 5, not 50. 500 saw Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body. Evidence. And then, of course, perhaps the most powerful evidence of all, the lives that were changed. The disciples who were in hiding on Saturday and still in hiding on Sunday morning when a hysterical woman comes and knocks on the door and says, they've taken his body, right? Those same disciples, 40 days later, after seeing Jesus at least 10 times and perhaps many more times, because everything's not recorded, are standing on the temple mount preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died to pay the penalty for our sins and then on the third day he rose again. They are no longer hiding. They are changed. And guess what? The same thing is happening today, isn't it? Last Sunday, we celebrated the baptism of three who have come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and their lives have been changed. And you know what I'm speaking of, because if you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you know your life has been changed by that. Amen? It's a miracle. And it is Evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He's still in the miracle working business to this very day. 52 years ago, God radically changed my life. Before that, oh, I believed in the existence of Jesus, I believed in the historicity of Jesus. I believed he was a historical figure. In fact, we celebrated his resurrection every Easter Sunday because we were a Christian family. We didn't go to church, mind you. But we celebrated it with an Easter egg hunt, you know. And had you asked me, I would have told you I was a Christian. But honestly, I had no clue what Jesus had done for me. Who he was. I really didn't. Until he opened my blind eyes. To see the evidence. That he has provided for us. So we must conclude with all this evidence. That God has provided for us. That if people fail to believe in the resurrection. It is because they refuse to believe not because the evidence is lacking. And this actually describes every one of us until Jesus opened our blind eyes to these truths. And once he did, it changed everything. Amen? Amen. And we will never be the same. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We have been transformed. We have been born again. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Praise be to God. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ changes us. It transforms us. We become new creatures in Christ. Now, unfortunately, we will remain in these mortal bodies until we die or Christ returns. Some of you young people don't know what I mean by unfortunately, but you older ones, you know exactly what I mean. But we are now spiritual beings as well. Amen? We have been raised up with Christ to spiritual life. We have been set free from the power of sin to enslave us. Are we still sinners? Unfortunately, yes. But we are no longer enslaved by sin. We've been set free from the power of sin. And we've been set free from the punishment of sin. We've been set free from the fear of death. And we've been set free from the judgment that is to come. For those who refuse To believe, we've been set free from the hopeless corruption of this present world. All of this as a result of God's great love for us and His grace that He has poured out upon us through His precious Son, Jesus. It's all captured in a single verse in John's Gospel. You know it well. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Talk about the gift of gifts. He gave his own son. His own son gave his own life. Dying in our place. So that all of us who believe in him will not perish. But we have eternal life. Eternal life in the son. And we will spend all eternity with him. Listen, every one of us are called by God to believe in his son. And to believe in what He has done to provide eternal life for us. And once we have done so, once we have experienced being born again, becoming a new creature in Christ, we are called then to rejoice. We are called to worship. We are called to a new life. Living for Him now. And living as His witnesses. Telling others the hope that we have in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. And for all who have believed and trusted in Him, we are risen as well. Risen in Christ. And looking forward to that day when we will have new glorified bodies as He has. Amen? Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, what a joy it is to be here this morning to rejoice in this great gift, the gift of salvation that was provided for us at such a cost, a cost that we can't even begin to imagine. We can imagine the pain of crucifixion. We can imagine the physical torment. But we cannot imagine your son bearing your wrath that was due for all of our sins. But that is exactly what he did for all who believe and trust in him. He was buried and then on that glorious first day of the week, on that glorious resurrection Sunday, he was raised from the dead, showing the world that death could not hold him. He had won the victory over sin and over death for all who believe in him, for all who trust in him. Father, if there are any here this morning that have not experienced this yet, I pray that today would be the day Open their eyes to see Jesus as their Savior. Cause them, Father God, to call upon Him for salvation. That they might experience what so many of us have already experienced. The new life that we have in Christ. And being brought into your family. Brought into your church. And we celebrate that today. We celebrate the resurrection of your Son, and the completed work of redemption for us. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.